Hey, good morning, lovely people of the planet. Today, it's about linguistic determinism. Yeah, linguistic relativity. Some people call it that, too. Yeah, or the uh, Sapir-Wolf hypothesis. Yeah, let's get into it. Good morning, lovely people of the planet. This is Jeffo. This is the Morning Ride Pedal Powered Podcast. Just a dude on a bicycle trying to evolve as a, a filmmaker, a poet, and a human being a little bit. A little bit of a human being. <laughs> Most of me is a human being. Yeah. Most of me is a handful of minerals and a bucket of water and some electrochemical charisma. <laughs> oh, folks, you have to find a way to crack yourself up because if you don't crack yourself up, how are others going to crack you up? So, I've read across uh, some pretty interesting things in the last few days. Getting ready for the email. Hey, on your left here for the these things email that I sent around. The edition two weeks ago was fairly simple and fairly complex. Philosophically speaking, you are enough. It's a simple idea. so difficult. So, so very difficult. Anyway, I've been uh, researching ways of getting over myself. I mean, I've been doing this for a year. You guys that have been riding with me Thank you so much. You've been listening to me struggle with the same things over and over. (laughs) If any of you are out there similar to Rain Man and can see the patterns, give me a call and say, dude, this is all you got to do because, like, this is, like, where you're stuck. (laughs) I would certainly appreciate it. (sighs) I don't expect that, folks. But wouldn't it be nice if uh, someone could help help point it out in a way that like I could actually see it because I know that the things that I'm struggling against are inventions within my mind meaning I could decide differently and they would be different hey good morning so it's about how do I adjust my perspective to support the little spiritual emotional being that I am. And that's the whole tricky part of it. Is adjusting perspectives. Jennifer's been uh, working with me a lot. She is such a great partner in this and talking through ideas and I notice that a lot of times she'll say something and like my first reaction is kind of like no. And I've never really been in that place before. Not to the extent that I am now. Maybe growing up, I don't remember any of that. I mean, not that I was hatched out of an egg and don't remember it, but... Hey, good morning on your left here. But the idea that I just don't remember growing up a whole lot. That's not the point. Beside the point. 
<laughs> Where were we? Good grief. Oh, I'm saying no immediately. And it's interesting because that clearly is an avenue that I've investigated and for some reason didn't, was not successful with it or it just simply didn't work. And uh, anyway, I'm trying to not have that knee-jerk reaction that my first thought is, hey, good morning. I'm trying to not have that re knee-jerk reaction so that my first thought isn't just no, because that's really ridiculous. It limits opportunity and possibility. Benjamin Zander wrote a great book about that. Uh, living in opportunity, a world of opportunity. Benjamin Zander, he works for the Boston Philharmonic Symphony. Boston Symphony, Boston Philharmonic. You know, one of those big rock bands have all the violins and stuff. <laughs> No, it's not a rock band. But I think he did their Pops concerts or something. I don't know where he is today, but he did write a book. I heard him talk at a conference. A conference on nonprofit leadership, I think. I don't remember what the conference was about specifically. And that was not because I drank a full bottle of whiskey that night. The next day, <laughs> Mr. Zander was talking about... how we live in possibility and how we open ourselves to possibility, how we stay open to possibility. One of the things was stay away from this knee-jerk reaction about saying no to an idea. Even if you've just done the thing and it didn't work out like you expected or it didn't work out. So that was super helpful. Maybe I need to read that book again, man. Anyway, another thing that I was running across. So Jennifer, thanks for I've been thinking her a lot, man. She's super important to me these days. <laughs> I mean, she always is, of course, but like really, really important these days. Ooh. What is it about the little red bastard that I almost always catch a great line on the wall? It's actually a very balanced bicycle. It's probably one of the better balanced bicycles I've ever ridden. I know, like better than my BMX and ramp bikes and all that kind of too bad handlebars do not lend themselves to riding in the skate park not that I haven't <laughs> I know see here I've admitted a few times like what a fool I am in certain areas oh yeah it's a great thing about it catharsis can't happen unless you're uh, willing to break some eggs or what was it? Well, hey, little deer. That's actually not a little deer for in the city, really. If the kitty's wet, may as well shampoo it. <laughs> that was one that Jennifer and I came up with the other night. Anyway, so linguistic determinism. is this idea that... So I've been thinking about determinism deterministic philosophies as opposed to like free will philosophies or libertarian philosophies and hey good morning and how what is free will I mean I believe I, I, mean, I truly believe this that that we invent reality to a certain extent now that is allegorical metaphorical 
It's figurative. It's figurative. I don't know that it's metaphor, but it's figurative. That is, if I decide that something, hey, if I decide something, then that's the way that it's going to be for that day or part of the day or extending cycles of years, as Walt Whitman says. Hey, coming around your left, lovely people. Good morning. So, well, let's just get into it. So the idea is that the language we speak necessarily creates certain pathways of thinking. In other words, the way that we put a sentence together with in English, that we've got a noun and a verb. We've got a subject and a verb, sorry. And the subject might be modified, like that blue house looks old, right? So that's a sentence. Blue is an adjective, house looks old. So we think that way, but like in a Spanish-based language, you know, the, uh, the um, adjectives aren't going to be in the same place. In, in German language, there are, it's a highly constructed language. There are only like seven, seven or eight exceptions in German. There's some speaking colloquialisms, spoken colloquialisms, but, but basically the way that you speak that language has so few variations according to some, this is not me saying this, but according to some, that, that it predetermines how you're going to think, how you're going to be able to express yourself, how you're going to be able to put a sentence together to get through your days interacting with other people, that there are only so many possibilities, whereas a more fluid language like Spanish, that you're going to have way more opportunity to be imaginative and emotional because the language allows for this. I'm making these examples up, folks. I'm not a linguist. I'm just a curious enthusiast. <laughs> but I'm fascinated by this idea because, because I don't believe, like, I don't believe that things happen for a reason. I believe that humans throughout time developed reason as a way to try to explain the wonder of the universe, really. Um, you know, being reasonable has few correlations with what we find in nature. In fact, being reasonable a lot of times is to try to keep things in a place of de-evolution. That is, when you're reasonable, you're not, you're not stepping forward into ideas. You are trying to hold on to the ideas you already understand. And so... Totally lost my, my line of thought there. I'm so sorry, folks. Basically, the way we speak is a lot, of, a lot of how we think. And so one of the things that I've been reading is how do we get over thinking in particular patterns, for example. 
And one of those ways is to read, and read a lot, and read different kinds of things. One of my most interesting stories, examples of this, linguistic determination or linguistic relativity or the Sapir-Wolf hypothesis is the uh, poet, the German poet, Paul Salon, C-E-L-A-N. He was a German poet after World War II or through World War II. And there was a point after the war that he stopped writing poetry in German because of this idea that he felt that the German language, that any language that could produce someone that thought the way that Hitler thought, that there was no way to write poetry in that language. I think it's a really kind of beautiful story to know that this very celebrated German poet would make that kind of big distinction later in life, later in his life. Now, I don't know where he was living after the war, but I know that he did, he did also write in English, so I'm guessing I also spoke in English. I imagine like a lot of Europeans living on the edges of countries that he probably spoke a little French as well. Anyway, I don't know anything else about him personally, other than his poems through the war are devastating because he wrote about the human experience of war, not the socioeconomic experience of wealthy people sending poor people to die so that they can have more money and control over the poor people. War is such a ridiculous, stupid idea. Anyway, I've been thinking about the predeterminism or determinism, predestination, free will, and I ran across this idea of literary determinism again, and I hadn't seen it in a while. I hadn't really seen it since graduate school, I don't guess. It reminded me of uh, Paul Salon and the work that he did and his commitment to the uh, vehicle that language can be, that is the way that language can shape our thoughts that he felt it so strongly that he didn't write. He was a German poet who didn't write in German anymore. It's a beautiful story to me. Folks, that is all I have in its jumbled mess. <laughs> I'm an associative thinker, folks, so it comes out like that. I don't know if English helps me with that or not. I don't know if I'm predetermined to be that way or not. But I do know but I love riding a bicycle, and I'm grateful to be back on the bike and out of the car today. And, uh, you know, if you love riding a bicycle, get out on a bicycle. Oh. Hey, coming around your left here. Yeah, we got a lot of folks around. Got, 
got through there without hurting anybody. Very good. Very good job. If you love riding a bicycle, get out on a bicycle. Maybe your bicycle is philosophical discourse. If you write that stuff down, man, it's good stuff. If you come up with some new ideas for us, let us know. Hey, good morning. Maybe your bicycle is just uh, enjoying the poetry so much. Not thinking about it. That's a good thing, too. In fact, that's the best way to do it. There's a lot of poetry out there, folks. Don't kill yourself reading stuff that you don't enjoy. Yeah, sometimes you got to read the stuff you don't enjoy to understand what it is that you love about the stuff you love, I think. But anyway, you get my point. Read what you want to read. Life is short. I hope that you enjoy your ride today. It is the only one we've got. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for riding with me. I really appreciate it. We're almost at our one-year anniversary, folks. (laughs) How do you like that, man? (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.